0: Can we just give a thank you to the Lord for worship this morning? Man. Um, If you're new with us, whether in person or online, thank you so much for joining. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. Um, I'm so glad that you've chosen to be here. We realize you could be anywhere. I was going to say you could be golfing, but not yet. No, it's no golf yet. Maybe not even fishing, but. Um, If you're exploring faith or church or just trying to figure out what's next, or maybe you're looking for a church home, we hope you'll consider being a part of what God is doing here. A couple quick family things, and I just want to say this again. Megan talked about these. So we're doing 40 Days of Purpose. How many of you guys remember doing Purpose Driven Life, maybe back in the early 2000s, some of you? Some of you maybe not? Okay. Um, Here's why we're doing this. So we have three core values, and we talk about them pretty regularly, but they are belong, believe. Anybody remember the third? become, right? And so here at Zion, we believe that you do not have to believe to belong, that you can be a part of our church, a part of what God is doing, and not even know Jesus yet. You can explore and understand, and this is a safe place for that stuff. However, in order to be a part of God's family, to belong to God's kingdom, God's family, you must believe in Jesus. And so we are unabashedly about Jesus. And ultimately, we've spent the last two years, we spent a year talking about belong, and then this year we're focusing on believing because what we believe matters. But we're heading into what we become. That's going to be next year. And part of our becoming is understanding and believing that God created us for a reason. And that's why we're doing this. This has been over a year and a half of praying and kind of seeking the Lord, trying to figure out the right time to go through this. And, And here's why we're doing it. I think a lot of times people struggle to understand that they were created for a purpose. Uh, I shared this in first service, and you may have heard this story. It became a movie. Um, this is the number one selling, apart from the Bible, the number one selling nonfiction book in U.S. history. It's sold sort of more, more copies than any other non-fiction book apart from the Bible. And uh, in the 2000s, there was a young woman who was ended up being held captive, kidnapped by a guy who was running from the police. And he took her into an apartment, held her there for several days, and and uh, she'd been reading through this book, and she started sharing what she was learning from the purpose driven life with her captor. And the guy ended up giving his life to Christ and surrendering to the cops. <laughs> and that's pretty remarkable. And, and here's why I share that is what makes this book special is not the book, it's God. It's, it's God's word that this is rooted in. This is just a great tool. And we're going to be doing it as a community. And my hope, my prayer is that you'll consider either one joining a missional community group or gathering some friends together if you're not ready to do that yet. And spending the next 40 days after Easter going through this together as an opportunity to kind of seek and be united, we're doing it as part of the DOC and also the traditional service. Our two communities are going to be focusing on this along with youth ministry, children's ministry. This is a church-wide initiative. And so I really hope that you'll take it seriously and join us and be a part of that. Second one is that we are doing a baptism service and we do baptism in the lake every year and we get a lot of people who want to get baptized, and sometimes what ends up happening is we get so fixated on the location that we forget that what makes baptism so special has nothing to do where it's at. It has to do with who's present, and so we're going to be doing a baptismal service right after Easter. We're bringing out the big dunk tank that we had built, and, uh, and here's why we get baptized. First, we believe that the Holy Spirit does something in baptism. We believe that the Holy Spirit shows up and And sometimes I hear this, well, Jason, I'm not ready to be baptized yet. I'm not, I'm still figuring out faith. That's you. This is about God showing up in your life. So really, it's about you surrendering to Jesus. And so baptism is open for anybody. We also have individuals who are baptized as babies, and we believe God moves through infant baptism. We believe that the Holy Spirit moves and produces faith in a child. But sometimes when people are older, they're like, listen, I need to reaffirm my baptism. It's not being rebaptized. We don't believe in rebaptism. But it's an affirmation of saying, here's what God is doing in my life, and I want to do that. So if you haven't been baptized or want to be a part of this service, please sign up. You don't have to have everything figured out. You just need faith in Jesus. And you don't even need the biggest faith. You need a faith as small as a mustard seed. That's enough for God to move. That's the beauty of the gospel. Amen? And so um, we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to have worship going because the focus of baptism is not the act. It's the God who shows up in it. And so my prayer is that you'll consider being a part of that. Lastly, um, and this is a family business issue. So uh, back in January, um, our children's director, Kate, resigned. And uh, Caleb Pratt stepped in and has done a wonderful job. And I'm so grateful for Caleb and his role. But there's a natural transition that happens in any ministry. And I want you to hear my heart in this, okay? Anytime somebody transitions, people naturally kind of go, well, I think I need to step away from that position. Here's the problem. If you're doing ministry for someone other than Jesus, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Ministry should never be attached to a person. I could die tomorrow. A bus could hit me. I could have a heart attack. I mean, I don't know what the timing is. But so often what happens, human nature is this. We attach our service to a person instead of the God we're serving. Well, here's what's happening. Natural, this happens in every church. Anytime you have a transition, leaders kind of step away. You lose momentum. Caleb is doing a wonderful job. We still have record numbers coming to our kids program, but we are short volunteers. And so if this is your home, here's what I'm asking you to consider. One, whether you're a parent, a grandparent, an aunt and uncle, whether you've had kids or not, doesn't matter. Would you consider prayerfully, even serving one time a month, talk to Caleb, that's not a commitment. You're not committing to anything, okay? But if you would prayerfully consider saying, hey, I wanna at least have a conversation and see if there's something you might be able to help with, that's part of our community, amen? Amen because the future of the church is not the future, it's now. Our kids matter. Our kids matter, and they're encountering Jesus in that service, and we want to make sure, one, we're not burning out volunteers. But also, I want you guys to be a part of what God is doing. So that's my spiel there. Uh, about three weeks ago, we started something new. So we, uh, the Bible tells us that God's presence is everywhere. This is called the omnipresence of God. And because what happens in churches, we use weird language that if you're not a Christian, you're like, that's weird. We'll often say, Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd show up in this place. Did you know God's already here? The Holy Spirit, there's not one atom in all of creation that God's presence is not present in. He's not in the table, but He's all around, He is everywhere. Well, so part of this is we believe in the presence of God, and because we believe the Holy Spirit is already here, what we need to pray is that we have eyes to see and ears to hear to see and hear what God is doing. So it's not about God showing up, it's about us showing up. Does that make sense? And so, what we started doing a few weeks ago was a prayer before we began, in which if you're not a Christian, do not by any means feel you have to pray this. If you are a Christian, you're like, I don't want to pray that. That's between you and the Lord. But we're now doing a prayer each week before the message and before we read the scripture. So would you stand with me? And if you want to pray this with me, would you please join with me? And if you're not comfortable with it, that's cool. It's between you and the Lord. But if you want God to show up and want hear, eyes to see, I almost said eyes to hear. That'd be weird. If you want eyes to see and ears to hear, let's invite the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, thank you for the gift of your presence and the gift of your word. Help me to hunger and thirst to be more like Jesus, to love your word. Breathe life in me. Awaken the parts of my soul that are asleep. Reveal the parts of me that are obstacles and revive a new spirit and desire to love and know you more today. Calm my thoughts and open the eyes of my heart to see your goodness so I can worship and love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help me to surrender the things I think give me life, but leave me empty and fill me with your spirit in Jesus' holy and mighty name. Amen. And now would you join me in our scripture for today? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Um, I shared last week about a pastor that I listen to pretty regularly, a guy named John Tyson. He's based out of New York. He and a gentleman by the name of Darren Whitehead wrote a book called Rumors of God. And in this book, They cited a a research, a study that was done with past Olympic gold, silver, and bronze medal winners. And what they were researching, the research was basically is how happy are and content are you after winning the gold, bronze, or Where or silver? And to no surprise, the happiest and most content was who? The gold winners, right? The gold medal winners were the most content. But what's surprising is this. The second most satisfied, the second happiest, the second most content were bronze medal winners. The least content were the silver medals. Now that sounds odd, but here's what happens. Here's what they discovered. See, the third medal place, the the third medal winner, the bronze medal, is just grateful to be on the podium. They're like, oh my gosh, I almost didn't make it. I got a medal, woo, All right? The gold medal winner's like, yeah, and the silver medal often thinks this, that should be my medal if I'd just done a little bit more. I should have, I could have, and in fact, what they call it is counterfactual thinking. It's not based on facts. It's usually based on emotions. That should be mine. I could have that. I should have that. And what they've discovered is that it leaves people with what they call silver metal syndrome. John Tyson says this, as Western Christians, we sometimes suffer from the silver metal. Leave that up. I love this picture. We suffer from the silver metal syndrome. Though we have the highest standard of living in recorded history, we never quite seem to have enough. I love this picture because look at this. This little boy's up here. He's like, yeah, third place. Woo! Right? He's all stoked and the second, they're, notice who's not there. Second place. And in America, we actually have developed this silver medal syndrome. Why? Because we are never satisfied. It always feels like we don't have enough. I struggle with this. I struggle with being content with what I have. And this is part of our American culture. I'm just going to be Fully transparent with you, I often have silver metal syndrome. Let me give you an example. A couple years ago, I bought a 2018 truck, a Silverado. Love my truck. When the 2022s came out, I love new shiny things. I was like, oh, but that's four years newer. <laughs> I'm like a fish, right? Something silver, shiny, new comes by, and I'm like, oh, I want that, right? That's just kind of natural for me. I'm always, I'm never content, and all of this plays into that never having enough. It's that second place mentality. And so you might have been here last week. I was originally going to speak on God's generosity last week, and I felt like the Holy Spirit asked me to hold off. And I, I wasn't sure why, and, and then this word had been coming to me for a couple weeks. It was the hiding place or the secret place, because here's what I, I think was going on, and I think I now understand why the Lord wanted me to wait until this week to talk about what we're going to, is the week, two weeks before that, we talked about the nearness of God. That God is present and He is near us and that because His omnipresence is everywhere, there is no place in your life that God is not present. But God wants more than nearness, He wants closeness, He wants intimacy with you. And that closeness is found in the hiding or the secret place. And this is what we talked about last week is that God has specifically created a place with you in mind. It's different than my place. There is no universal secret place. There's no one closet, so to speak, that you need to find in your house. God knows you better than you know yourself, and there is one place where God wants to meet with you so he can do business with you because God wants to do more than have a transactional relationship with you. We talked about that too many of us think of faith as transactional. I'm saved. I'm forgiven. I'm a son of the king. I'm going to heaven. And then we leave it at that, but imagine, and this was the illustration I shared last week with my wife, imagine if after I got married to my wife, I looked at her lovingly in her eyes and said, hey, now that we're married, what's the bare minimum I need to do to stay married to you? That's transactional, right? That's what happens to a lot of us is we get, we get into a relationship with God and we th- that's it. I, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I'm, I'm a son of the king, and we say the language, but that's all transaction. God wants more than transaction, He wants transformation, Just like in any relationship, relationships can be transactional, but the real relationships are transformational, amen? And transformational relationships don't just happen. They happen through intentionality. They happen through closeness. You have to find those places to develop connection and intimacy. They never happen by accident. And the problem is, and and I'll, I'll say I'm part of this problem as a pastor, is too often what we've taught people from the pulpit or from the stage or on podcast or in books is a really a, a misunderstanding or a wrong understanding of a relationship with God. We've not taught that the secret place is, is hard to find it, but God is a master artist and as a master artist, He wants to meet with you in those safe places to do business with you, to do the work in you because He knows you, but more importantly, He wants to create a masterpiece in and through your life. But you have to meet Him there. You have to find that place where God has designed you. Your secret place is not going to be the same as mine. And it's not supposed to be. That's why it's called the secret. (laughs) It's the place where God wants to meet with you. Now, as a master artist, God is a craftsman who is doing the work of cultivating and trying to shape you. And when he meets you in the secret place, you discover that this God is safe. Not that you're always going to be safe, but that he is safe. And and when you're in the secret place, like a master artist, he can begin to do the work of shaping and forming you to creating you to make you the piece of art that he wants you to be. Because here's the thing, a work of art always points back to its artist. Let me give you some examples. Check out this. Who's this? Anybody recognize this? It's the Mona Lisa. How about this one? Starry Night. Those did not create themselves. There was an artist who painted these pictures. Art always points back to the artist. And God wants to meet with you to shape and form you, to develop you, to help you become the man, the woman that you're supposed to be in him because it gives glory to him. It makes the master artist look good because he's worthy of praise. But that doesn't happen by accident. Sadly, what often is taught in the church. We read the Bible as if we think that everything's on a mountaintop, that, that God is like, if, you're, if you love Jesus, you're always going to hear from God. He's always going to be speaking to you, and if there's always highs and miracles are going to break out, and even our songs sound that way, right? Our songs even point to this. It's a misreality. It's, a, it's not reality. When you read the Bible, do you realize that there were sometimes decades between periods when the Lord showed up and talked to Abraham. It makes it sound like Monday, Abraham heard from the Lord. Tuesday, the Lord spoke again. Then Wednesday, then Thursday. No, he faithfully loved God, and God showed up when he needed and wanted to. His job was to be faithful, and this is the job of every Christian. Love is not about a feeling. Love is a commitment. Just like in marriage. Okay, let's do, I'm gonna, we're going to do a game here. Show of hands. If you've been married, everybody raise your hand if you're married. Okay, okay, put your hands down. If you've been married for five years or more, raise your hand. Keep your hands up. 10 years. If you've been married 10 years or more, 15 years. You guys getting the game? All right, you're getting the right. 20 years. 25. 30. 35. 40. 45. 46. 50. Holy cow, way to go. Can we give it up for those who have been married? Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> All right, you guys ready for this? Here's the question. Has your marriage always been on the high end of the roller coaster? Has it always been amazing? (laughs) Lee Nagel, last service, went, nope. (laughs) It was hilarious. See, this is the problem is we tend to think of relationships. We think everything's on the high, but just like a relationship with God and relationship with people, we have ebbs and flows. There are seasons where we feel distant. There are seasons we feel close you've been married for any length of time or in relationship, you know that it's unrealistic to always be up here. In fact, your brain, neuroscience has shown your brain can't handle that. Your brain has to regulate, right? And so we have these valleys, but it's in the valleys that we cultivate depth. You don't get depth up in in the sky, you get depth in the ocean. You get depth in the canyons. You get depth in the hard parts. That's where real relationship is cultivated. And so what happens is in the secret place of the Lord, when you begin to discover where that safe place is, what God can do in you is this. It's there in the secret place that you're able to let your guard down, that you're able to be vulnerable to admit sin and failure. It's there that you can encounter the exceeding, amazing forgiveness of God. It's there that you experience healing and restoration. And and so I started thinking about this, and maybe that's why God asked me. Maybe, maybe that's why it felt like I was supposed to hold off on talking about this week's, which was generosity. See, until you've been in that place where you meet the love of God in an intimate way, where you can be truly vulnerable, that's when you encounter a generous God. A God who generously lavishes His love, mercy, and grace on you in spite of you. And so in order to understand generosity, well, first we have to understand that God is near even when we don't feel Him. But God wants more than nearness, He wants closeness. And and that closeness is intimacy. And as you discover intimacy, what you'll find is this, is that we have a God, we love a God who is longing to be generous with us. But there's an obstacle to God's generosity, and it's a hard one to learn, to let go of, to trust, and to surrender. Let me make it even more personal. It's one thing to say you believe in God and have faith. It's altogether a different thing to actually trust in that God. And last week, we talked about if God is a hiding place, here's the problem. For some of you, for many of you, you aren't hiding in Christ, you're hiding from Christ. Let me say that one more time. You are not hiding in Christ, you're hiding from Christ. And and the reason why I think some of us do this is that we're seeking shelter in the wrong people, places, and thing because The shelters that we used to feel comfortable. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine you're hiking, okay? So you're going for a hike, and all of a sudden, you're in the middle of the woods. This vicious storm comes out of nowhere. And you're realizing it's not safe to be outside. And so you look, and you find a cave. And so you go and take shelter in the cave, and you're like, oh, my gosh. all Right, I can breathe. I don't have to worry about the storm. But what you don't realize is that the cave belongs to somebody else. The cave, what you think is a safe place, is actually a den of vipers, That's the problem with our false shelters. See, they feel safe. The world wants us to believe that hiding in stuff, hiding in money, hiding in jobs and careers and families, that these are safe places. But in reality, they are a pit of vipers if we're not careful. There's nothing wrong with a job. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with family. But when you find that as your shelter, you will find yourself in a deadly place. And this is part of the problem is that we don't understand that there is a safe place to be. And I've shared this many times. It's from Henry Nowen. He's a very well-known theologian, Catholic theologian, spiritual formation guy. And Henry Nowen talks about the three most common lies, the three lies common to all people. And I think these lies are actually false shelters, that they're actually places that we hide in believing that they're safe when in reality they're often the downfall for our lives, our contentment and our joy. The first lie is I am what I have. The second lie is I am what I do. The third lie is I am what others think of me. Now, some of you might right now be going, oh, that hurts, right? And this got me thinking, how are these lies false shelters? Because this is exactly what the world preaches. This is what my flesh, this is what human Jason finds, thinks is actually safe, where this is real safety is found in these things. So let's talk about each of these very briefly. I am what I have. The first lie, some of you are seeking shelter in your wealth, in your stuff, your family. See, it's not just about money. Family can also be a lie. Children, grandchildren, being married or not, it's easy to seek refuge to find shelter in the wrong things. But here's what happens. What happens when you lose your money or the house that you work so hard for burns down or you can't pay for it? Or what if you never get married or your marriage ends up in divorce? Or what happens if you think freedom is the goal and then you're realizing that you're enslaved to debt or something else? What happens when the shelter of stuff comes crashing down? Or what about the second lie, I am what I do. I am my job. I am a, a parent, a mother, a, a father, a husband, a wife. I'm single. I'm whatever it might be. We, we, when we start putting our identity, finding our security in what we do, sometimes that lie comes down to I am, am I a good person? I'm a good person. Or how about my skills and abilities? I can draw, I can paint, I'm good with money. We have all these things that become false shelters, but what happens when you lose that job? Or what happens when you don't succeed or you think you're a good person and yet you fall into sin? Did you know that all of us are one decision away from being our worst selves? Did you catch that? All of us are one decision away from being our worst selves. What happens when we get sick and can't do the things you love anymore? What happens when the shelter of doing falls apart? Or the third lie, I am what others think of me. What happens when people don't see you as successful? Or you're not as famous as you think you should be. Or maybe they, people don't think you're a good person. Or maybe you're not as popular or the social status What happens when you fall or fail, or when your reputation gets tarnished, or you lose that position of influence? What happens when the shelter of people's perception begins to crack? What makes these such dangerous lies, why they're false shelters, is because they're a double-edged sword. We tend to think on the positive side, right? Oh, well, I've got it together. But the other side of that, imagine there's two, there's two gut gutters to fall into. Some of you are busy believing the negative about yourself. I'm divorced. I'm sick. I'm broken. See, when you find shelter in any of these things, you either think too highly of yourself or you think too lowly of yourself, both are lies. Uh, there's a story that we're going to share in a few minutes of of Jesus who encountered a young man who believed he had all three of these were part of his identity and all three of them were lies that he believed into. But here's what I think can happen. I know way too many people who think that because they don't have money or they don't have the big house or they aren't married or they can't have children or they've only got one child... They move into the I'm poor, I'm nothing, I'm alone. I also know people who when they lose the job or can't find a job or they get sick, they all of a sudden become failures. I'm inadequate, I'm worthless. I also know individuals. What happens when people don't like you or when there's conflict and they begin to run into the other gutter of I'm a loser, I'm hated, I'm unwanted, I'm unlovable. And part of it is our culture perpetuates these lies. Social media has it everywhere. When was the last time you had somebody post their worst self? Even even the ones where they're like, I didn't wake up great this morning. I'm like, that's still totally staged. Like you probably put hairspray in your hair to make it look messy. Because that's the lie, that's the illusion of our culture, is that we we've we've made shelters in the wrong places because they don't want to have shelter in Christ. But these are still lies. So there's a young man, and this young man comes to meet with Jesus. This is found in Mark chapter 10. It's, in fact, the title of this actually describes what this man believed about himself. He is the rich, young ruler. It's what he has. It's what he does. It's what other people think of him. And he comes to Jesus as a wealthy young man, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? This is a great question. What do I need to get saved? You know how many people I wonder, who, who wonder, what do I need to do to get saved? What, what's in my control that will save me? What can I do? Jesus replies to him, why do you call me good? God alone is good. This young man didn't actually realize he was talking to God. He, he knew something about Jesus without knowing something about Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, why do you call me good? And then Jesus says, hey, you know the Ten Commandments, you know God's laws, you know, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't dishonor your parents. You know those ones? And, and the, the rich young ruler looks at me and he says, I've done all these things since my youth, Jesus. Now here's where the gut punch, the ouch moment comes in. Jesus looks at the man with love, not condemnation, not judgment, with love. And he says this, there is one thing you lack. I want you to take all that you have and sell it to the poor. Or sell it and then give it to the poor. And then you will have real treasure, treasure in heaven. And lastly, come follow me. Now here's the thing. Jesus, in other words, is saying this. I want to be your greatest treasure. But more than that, I want your identity to be in me. Come follow me. And it says this. The young man went away sad because he owned a lot of stuff. Here's the part that we don't realize or that he certainly didn't realize is that he's known as the rich young ruler. He has no name. He's identified by the worldly values of who he is. You want to know who got names in the Bible? There are two people who God told to get rid of their riches, which is a great story because it means that you don't have to sell all you have and give it to the poor in order to be saved. But these two people, their riches were their obstacle. They were their identity. They were the thing that they were hiding in. One is the rich young ruler. The other was a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Which of the two has a name? Zacchaeus was broken, sold all he had, and paid back all that he had stolen. He found his identity in Christ. Jesus was actually turning to this man because he realized that his hiding places were in the wrong space. His his stuff was his wealth. He was the rich, his youthfulness, and even his own self-righteousness. Well, I'm a good person. I've obeyed the law. I'm a pretty good guy. And then his position as ruler, he had authority. People saw him as the rich young ruler. He hit the proverbial jackpot from a worldly perspective. Now, when Jesus asks them to give these things up, what he's really inviting him to is to actually come out of hiding that's all he's doing. You're hiding in the wrong places. Come out of hiding. That's that's the scariest part of the gospel is that in order to experience the generosity of God, you have to get out of the lie. And some of you, including myself, have believed these lies. I wonder if the reason he couldn't let go of the things that he had to sell it all and follow Jesus is because either he didn't trust, didn't believe, or simply didn't understand that God is generous and would give him far more than anything the world could offer. Either he didn't trust, he didn't believe, or he didn't understand. Because if he did, I think he would have gladly would have been like, I'll give it all away to follow you, Jesus. Everything. Jesus was inviting this man to real life, real freedom, real identity. You know, one of the lies that I discovered very quickly. See, when I was younger, I thought the more money I had, the more freedom I had. But you know what comes with more money? More stuff. And in order to have more stuff, what do you have to have? More money. And in order to get more stuff, you need more money. But in order to get more money, you have to do more things. And I got caught in this perpetual lie of thinking that eventually all these things will satisfy. Guess what? None of them leave you satisfied, do they? And Jesus is saying, come out of hiding, and he's not just saying that to this man, he's saying it to you, but this man wanted a transactional faith. See, he was rich, he was young, and he had status, he was a ruler, and so when he came to Jesus and said, what must I do to get an eternal life, what he's really saying is, what can I control, and here's the thing, and you need to hear this, if you bring anything to the table, it's no longer the gospel, it's you. The only thing that you can bring to the table is Jesus, that's it. The minute you think that eternal life comes because of wealth or poverty or because you're good or bad, that's all dependent upon you. You only can rely on Jesus, but see, that's transactional. Jesus didn't want that for him. He wanted transformation. What the young man wanted was money, youth, and power, and this is exactly why this is the hardest part, because let's put ourselves in his position. How many of you would give up everything to follow Jesus? I'll be honest. I don't know that I would have. I don't, I don't know that if a traveling rabbi came to me and said, sell all your, all your goods and then give it to the poor and come and follow me, I don't know that I'd have it in me. Because guess what? He didn't even know that Jesus was God yet or would raise from the dead. We have the benefit of knowing that Jesus is the Christ, amen? He didn't. So before we point fingers and judge him, let's be honest, like, that's a lot to ask. And yet God says this, is that if you really want to know the goodness, the lavishness, the generosity of God, you need to die to self. You need to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Jesus never promised to make somebody rich or famous so that he would give you all the things what he did promise was eternal life. Jesus does promise that if you surrender trust to lay down your life, pick up your cross, that God will generously lavish on you. But that doesn't make it easy. And it's not a guarantee that everything's going to go your way. In fact, what Jesus does promise is this, is that if you trust Him with your life, with your time, talent, and treasure, with your identity, His generosity will overflow in your life, but maybe not in the way you have vision for. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times having all that you need you will abound in every good work as it is written they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor the righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Do you realize that Paul is just reframing Jesus' challenge to the rich young ruler? Paul's not saying anything original. He's actually just bringing what Jesus brought to the rich young ruler. and, And Jesus is inviting the rich young ruler and he's inviting you and me to more than 10x of return. Now, here's the thing. Prosperity gospel will say, if you give $100, God's going to give a 1000 That's a lie. That's not a promise God gives you. But God does promise to generously bless you. What does that mean? Well, let's look at this text again from what Paul says. Here's how God blesses you. Ready for this? Check out this list. He will bless you abundantly. He will provide all that you need, not always all that you want. <laughs> Anybody here ever prayed to win the lottery? Do we have any lottery winners? No, no one in here? Okay you will abound in every good work. He will supply and increase. He will enlarge a harvest of righteousness. We think God wants to enlarge our bank accounts. No, He wants to enlarge your righteousness that you become more like Jesus. He wants to enlarge your life. He will enrich you in every way so that you can be generous. You're called to be generous because God is generous. And when you begin to trust in the generosity of God, it overflows out of your life. Now, some of you are like, "Uh uh-oh, Jason's going to start talking about money. I am, but this isn't a sermon on money. You want to know how I can say that? We're actually a pretty generous church. God is faithfully, there are so many of you that give generously and faithfully to Zion. Did you know this building was paid for and bought because of the generosity of saints who are like, we need something that's going to leave a legacy. Years ago, 20 years ago, did you know we had a capital campaign that we had paid for, almost 100% paid for in less than a year. That's the generosity of God's people. But here's the thing, I don't talk about money. When was the last time you can remember talking me talking about money? Haven't done it in two and a half years. And the reason for it is that I didn't feel like we were ready for it, but I feel like if we're going to understand generosity, we have to get to the root of one of the biggest obstacles, the biggest hiding places in our lives, it's finances. That's including mine. So why did Jesus, why does Paul challenge them and us to trust God with our resources, but also with our security and even our own righteousness? See, this is not a sermon on money. Actually, I promise you, I'm almost done talking about money. Here's the other challenge. If you're uncomfortable because I'm talking about money, you're probably finding shelter in money. Usually, if you get uncomfortable with something, it's because that's where you found hiding places. Listen to what Jesus says. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. But did you know this isn't just about money? There are all kinds of things that can be masters in your life, not just money. All kinds of stuff that provide false sense of security and self. And the problem with all stuff is that you can lose it in an instant. Listen to some of the other masters that exist. How about the master of human human doing? I'm a good person. The status as a master, people pleasing. Any people pleasers in here? Did you know for years I thought I wasn't a people pleaser? And then I had to kind of come to Jesus and I realized, wow, I'm totally a people pleaser, right? People pleasing can be a master. Your children can be a master. Your spouse can be a master. Your job, your fear, your securities. All of those things can be masters of your life. You cannot serve them and Jesus at the same time. And all of those are false hiding places, all of them are traps that we all fall into. I fall into, you fall into it. What we need to is do is to come out of hiding. So this isn't just about money. God cares about our money because here's the thing. In order to get a bigger house, what do you need? More money. In order to feed your bigger family, what do you need? More money. And when you apply for a job, what's the first question you ask? How much money am I gonna make? When you, I mean, think, whether it's professional athletes, money is at the center of a lot of things. People have wrongly said that money is the root of all evil. It's not. It's the root of all kinds of evil. But really, it's about our finding our security in stuff rather than God. And God does something unique. He gives us a way to actually challenge our hiding place. He gives us a challenge to say, listen, are you trusting in me? or Are you trusting in stuff? And He does it, and it's a very simple thing, and it's a principle that the Bible doesn't say if, but when. It's called the tithe. Now, we've already given our tithe. We're not going to do a second offering. That's my promise to you. I'm not going to talk about this. And, and no, let's receive the offering again. That's not, this is a heart condition. Did you know I don't know what anybody gives in our church? I have no clue. You can give $10 million a year. Well, first of all, that's not happening. But if you did, I wouldn't know. I don't know if you give one cent. I don't want to know because tithing is between you and the Lord. But why did God institute the tithe? Because the tithe is God's way of saying, hey, you want to come out of hiding? Trust me. And the word tithe literally means 10%. It doesn't mean whatever's in your pocket. That's literally what it means. What a, the tithe is meant to be a 10%. Do you trust God? And in Malachi 3.10, God, this is an Old Testament book, God tells the people of Israel, they're not tithing to the Lord. Now, here's one of the other lies that people will say, and, and this is all human reasoning. Well, Jason, I'm, I'm pretty generous. I give a little bit of money over to this charity, and then I do this charity, and then I do this charity, or I tithe with my time. Those are all, those are all hiding places. Malachi 3.10 talks about the storehouse of the Lord. Do you know what the storehouse of the Lord is? It's where your spiritual community is. You bring it to the church as a way of trusting the church, but it's trusting God, and God says, listen, if you do this, bring me the whole tithe into the storehouse. The storehouse is your community. I don't feed somebody else's storehouse. That's how we know he's talking about the church. The storehouse is for your community. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be found in my house. Now, check it out. Here's the promise. God says, if you do this, I will bless you. It's the only place we're called to test God. Now, why am I talking about this? That's the end of my money talk. I told you it wasn't going to be long. Here's the whole point of it, is that God is giving us a way to increase our reliability. See, when we begin to trust God with that, other things fall in place. And I can tell you that's not always easy to do as somebody who didn't tithe regularly to the Lord. I didn't. I had to repent of that. But I'll tell you that when I did that, God has provided for me. Now, He never promises that He's going to make me rich. Prosperity gospel is going to tell you that, and in fact, the prosperity gospel looks more like the world's gospel because prosperity teaching tells you that if you tithe, God's going to give you $6,000 sneakers and the bigger house and Lear jets, And that's a lie from the pit of hell. Our riches is in Jesus, amen? That is where our riches come from. And so what happens when we begin to trust God with all that we are? Well, let's go back to 2 Corinthians 9, 8. The God who is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God wants you to come out of hiding. I'm gonna invite the worship team up because otherwise I'll be up here all day preaching. Okay, I don't wanna do that to you. And some of you are like, please, pastor, just be done. (laughs) But here's the promise that I'm going to give you from the Lord. We have a generous God. And when you trust God, and that generosity is forged in the secret places of the Lord, but it's also forged in those places where you actually take the step and say, okay, I'll obey, I'll trust. See, the problem for the rich young ruler is that I wonder if he couldn't leave it all behind because his identity Would no longer actually be the rich young ruler he'd now be the follower of Jesus and the rich young ruler actually felt like a much better title but at the end of the day no one remembers no one knows who the rich young ruler's name is but we all know who Peter is Matthew Mark Luke John Paul Barnabas Bartholomew even Judas See, God wants to lavish, to pour out blessing in your life. He wants to exchange the lies that you've been hiding. So maybe you're not the rich young ruler. Maybe you're the divorced single parent or the successful wealthy business owner. Maybe you're the talented young athlete or student or maybe you're poor, broken, jobless. Maybe you're the really nice guy. Maybe you're the retired struggling, the retired person who's struggling with purpose. All those are false securities. All those are false hiding places. Jesus is saying, come out of hiding. Come and follow me. I have more for you. Do you trust me? And that trust is a promise. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me. And here's what we're going to do. There's a direct invitation from our text this morning. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. What if another way of looking at it is this? The reason why you received is because you asked. Maybe the reason why you found is that you were seeking. Maybe the door was open because you actually knocked on it. This is an invitation to come out of hiding. Will you come out of hiding? I want to show us one last thing. Everybody look over on the that used to say the prayer corner. To quote my friend Tricia McGrath, no one puts God in a corner. No one puts baby in a corner, right? God is not relegated in the corner. God is everywhere. This is a house of prayer. This place belongs to God. God exists and moves throughout this. We want God to move in this place, in this space, and in our lives. The church is not a building. The church is the people, amen? And so we want to see God move generously, but we must surrender to that generosity. We must allow God. We must come out of hiding so that God can embrace us. And this morning, some of you here need to come out of hiding. So here's what I'm going to ask you. Do Everybody close your eyes. I want you to picture of those three things. Is it you are what you have? You are what you do? You are what other people think of you? When you can picture in your mind which one of those you are, would you just raise your hand for me? The minute you can understand, what's, what's the false place you're hiding? When you see it, raise your hand keep that hand up for a second. Okay, ready? I just want you to repeat after me. Lord, I'm coming out. I surrender to you.